If you compare beer with bratwurst, and cheese with wine, or even whiskey, with donuts, then we think you can pair all of these delicious drinks with murder, conspiracies, missing persons, and more. Drink with us as you feed your craving for true crime and creepy stories. Hello. Howdy. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm doing well, Jason Stanley. <laughs> Dropping my middle name in there, huh? I, I don't have a longer name. No, I don't. I have one name. One name and one name alone. It's all you need. Yeah. I've been called Jace before. You call I me Jace. I usually call you Jace. Yeah. So um, I guess I got a couple. Dropping my legal name. <laughs> <laughs> like you're mad at me. Yeah. I'd never use that when I, I say your real name when I'm mad. Credit. <laughs> <laughs> With the appropriate inflection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, we have a lot to get into here. Yes, but before we jump in, I want to let anybody listening know that this is the second part to a two-part episode. And if you haven't listened to the first part, I would suggest going back and listening to John Bonet Part 1. Yeah, and then Part 1, we tell the story of how it unfolded. Yes, we cover the events of Christmas night, the events of Christmas morning, and the days following. We don't really get into any speculation or discussion of evidence but this crime is almost 30 years old and i think people probably need a refresher as to the details before yeah. appreciating a discussion of evidence yeah certainly so go back yep and we'll see you in an hour and a half <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely listen to that first um we've got a lot to get into here i um well I just won't even say much more except let's get started. Yes. Um, let's so what get, are we drinking? Get right on the drinks. Um, so <laughs> we're going as basic as we can. And yes. we are doing um, my favorite light beer. I believe yours. I don't know if you have a favorite or if you really favorite. care. Um, but you do enjoy a light beer and some football together and I do. A hot day and a light beer every yep. now and then. And this is what I would choose. Yeah. Because I'm Colorado proud. Yep. So for um, Colorado's um, you know, most infamous unsolved case. Colorado's literally the crime of the century. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. We will have um, certainly the beer of the century for Colorado. And, uh, You're welcome that to use that, Pete. <laughs> That is um, Coors. Coors Light is what we're drinking from them. Um, Coors was founded in 1873 in Golden, Colorado. Yeah, wild. It goes back that far. And Golden, Colorado, for those that don't know, uh, is just south south of, of Boulder. So Boulder and Golden sit right in front of the Rocky Mountains. Mm hmm. And um, I should have looked it up. They're probably like 15 miles away from each other. And there's one highway that connects them both. And yep. there's not a lot in between the two. So yeah. they're uh, almost a stone's throw away from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, here's your Coors Light. Coors. Get yourself some Coors. What a some proud Coloradan drinks. Coors lattes. Cold as the Rockies. And the mountains are blue. So it's nice and cold. Yeah. As I'm sure it was December 25th, 1996. 
Indeed it was. It's a very cold day. Tastes just like a Coors Light. Yeah. I, um, Coors was my go-to for the longest time. And I, I don't think I ever really tried Bud Light and Coors Light next to each other. But I actually kind of liked Bud Light a little bit more. I'm not sure if I've ever drank Bud Light, to be honest. Oh, you have. <laughs> Do we um, used to buy it? Yeah, I used to buy it. and But then I want to, you know, get Colorado proud again. And so, you know, I kind of gave Coors a chance again. Tried them next to each other again. And I'm actually more of a fan of Coors now. Well, an unsolved crime that took place in Colorado... Christmas night, possibly Boxing Day, 1996, is perfectly paired with a beer over a hundred years strong in the state of Colorado itself. So let's just jump right in. So hours after finding the lifeless body of their six-year-old daughter in a room in the basement of their home, strangled with a garrote and a large skull fracture, the result of a significant blow to JonBenet's head, John and Patsy Ramsey had hired themselves a team of people. Denver attorney Patrick Burke would represent Patty. John would have a separate attorney named Brian Morgan. The couple hired a PR specialist and an attorney named Jim Jenkins to represent the Ramsey family while in Atlanta. The Ramseys even brought onto their team none other than the mind hunter himself, John Douglas, to question the couple, examine the ransom note, and even speak to Boulder police investigators. Yeah. Um, I read my refresher actually came from uh, John Douglas's writing. He he wrote a book. Um, oh, geez, I'm forgetting the, the title. Cases That Haunt Us. The Cases That Haunt Us. That's it. And uh, it's a bunch of different cases. Uh-huh. There's a chapter on John Monet. Now, it's not just like a chapter. It's what, two and a half hours of Listening audible. Listening sped up. Yeah. So it's. Because <laughs> I uh, also listen yeah, to it. It, it, it's, it goes in, It covers everything. It does. Um, without any unnecessary stuff in there. And uh, yeah, he knows his stuff. He's. Yeah. He's the man when it comes to. He's the to, hunter of minds. Yeah. As so it goes. Which I'm sure everybody that you know semi even likes no, Sean Douglas. yeah well maybe not the name but Mindhunter because yes. of the Netflix series that they put up correct days after the murder the family willingly submitted DNA samples but it wouldn't be until April 30th 1997 that the parents sat down for an official interview with investigators the logistics of said interview were stipulated by the Ramsey team Immediately after the interview, the parents held a press conference to announce their innocence. Neither John nor Patsy Ramsey turned over the clothes they were wearing the night of December 25th or the early hours of the 26th for a full year. When the clothes were turned over to investigators, there was a strong belief that the items alleged to have been worn by Patsy were newly bought. In March of 1998, a grand jury was convened. Jurors spent months looking at the evidence. Now, before moving on, it's time for another legal lesson from a layman. A grand jury only looks at evidence presented by the prosecutor in a case early on to determine if there is probable cause or enough reason to indict someone. In other words, bring charges against them. 
Unlike criminal court cases, which are constitutionally guaranteed to be public, grand juries are private and the records for them are sealed. The grand jury would indict both parents on two separate charges, child abuse and being an accessory to a crime. However, the Boulder County DA, a man named Alex Hunter, declined to file charges against either parent. So let's discuss some of the evidence jurors might have considered, starting with the 911 call. We played the 911 call in its entirety in part one, or we played what most people believe to be the entirety of Patsy Ramsey's desperate call for help. However, investigators believed that there might be some clues hidden at the end of the call when Patsy thought she had hung up the phone. An aerospace corporation located in Los Angeles, California, filtered extraneous sound from the recording, and what investigators believe to be revealed are the following statements. Patsy is heard saying, help me Jesus, help me Jesus. Then either Patsy or a child, most likely Burke, since he was the only child in the home at the time, saying, what did I do or what did you do? Then John says in a parental authoritative tone, we're not talking to you which makes me believe that the prior statement was indeed said by Burke, if it was said at all. I don't think he would have spoken to Patsy like that. Then a child's voice is heard saying, what did you find? If indeed these are the statements made between the three living Ramsey family members on the morning of the 26th, after Patsy believed the call to the 911 operator was over, it lends itself to support the family theory. Remember, at the end of the last episode, we briefly discussed that two theories quickly emerged during the investigation. Either the family did it, or an intruder did it. Seasoned investigators looking at the same evidence would find themselves on different sides of those competing theories. Now back to the 911 call. First, both parents were adamant with investigators that their son Burke was asleep the entire morning until John woke him at 7 a.m., if it is indeed Burke's voice on the end of the recording, then I am left wondering why the parents felt it necessary to lie to police officers. Second, when Burke asks, what did you do? Or what did I do? Who is he talking to? Is it his mom or his dad? Or is he rhetorically asking both, like a child often does when their parents seem mad at them, but the child doesn't understand why? What did I do? do? Did you ever find that recording, like a good one? Not a good one. So I remember hearing it while watching a special that we're going to talk about later in 2016. Yeah. And they I, played it while superimposing the phrases. And I think when that happens, your mind maybe connects what it's reading to what it's hearing. Oh, yeah. And I've listened to it. I think you definitely can hear Patsy Ramsey saying, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus. I do hear a hint of like, what did you do or what did I do? I hear more, what did I do? And then there's definitely something. Mm. But there was nothing that I could play that I think anybody could hear. Yeah. But if without you're curious, those words, without those words. Yeah, you th like a good example of that. And I'm sure um, most people listening, you know, cruises through reels and whatnot on Instagram and you get these funny ones that are like a rap song that was popular growing up 
and they throw the words of uh, just ridiculous words, but they sound just like it. And it's you're reading the words, and you're literally hearing exactly what that was. And the only thing that I can go to even just like support, maybe this actually is what it's saying, is that whatever we have access to isn't maybe what police have access to. Which I'm curious. Like I doubt we were given the audio recording with that part actually cleaned up. So I bet uh, it's got to be out there. I don't know why cleaned up version of that. Yeah. Well, it's. I don't know why it wouldn't be out here now. And I'm sure even that show probably has like the best version you could if we went back and watched it and yeah. just didn't watch the words. Um, but it is, man, for you not to be able to hear it on even the lower quality. But I think I do hear some of it. And then I'll listen to it again and I don't hear any of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's why. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a weird. It's a. It's an interesting um piece of I, I don't even think you call it evidence because it's um opinion <laughs> like it's somebody's opinion that that's what's, that's being, what's said. being said or that there's this these noises that are people talking um because it, it's uh because you also have the operator asking for patsy at yeah, the same patsy? time patsy yeah so mm-hmm. it's like yeah i don't and, know and phones back then like it's not the same quality like it's not a digital quality it's a i don't know it's a i wonder if our younger readers will even know what i mean when i say hung up the phone (laughs) well they'll know what it means they'll just picture a different action pulling it off your ear putting it on the receiver yeah touching the red dot (laughs) i don't know i do think i hear john saying we're not talking to you i don't know but then maybe your brain is predisposed to think that's what's being said so that's what you hear anyway are we talking theories right now or not theories but our opinion right now you can absolutely give me your opinion for sure i just didn't want to interrupt if you had like a i mean like this uh a structure to what we were doing no well Um, this is going to lead into the first theory of the crime okay cool but you can absolutely tell me what you think about the recording for sure because we've talked about it a bit and um my mind still goes let's just say that that's being said at the time and but my mind uh is it doesn't it can't just jump to the conclusion that oh the parents did something, there's something crazy happening. Cause it could easily be, um, Burke. Burke. I, <laughs> Katie hates it. Cause I can, ne- I always want to call him Berg, <laughs> which isn't even a name. <laughs> like like they wanted to name him Burger. And oh, let's do Berg. Burke is a name. Burke, Burke. Burke kind of is too, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, so Burke, if he's awake, and he says those things, it can easily be just a confused kid seeing his parents like freak out, frantic, just like, what's what's happening? What's going on? Um, even the words, like, what did you find? Which I think everybody, when you hear this, that, you know, this was on the recording, um, your mind goes right to, oh, does he know where the body is? Like, did he leave it there? And they're like, well, what did you guys find? I don't buy that. I think she's literally on the phone talking to dispatch about a note she just found. So he hears her saying this and that's what he's asking about. And the dad, I get this way when things are too crazy and frantic and a kid's trying to talk to me, 
like you might bark something like we're right. not talking to you right yeah. now. We're trying to figure this out. I think like 80% of communication is actually nonverbal or extraverbal. It's not just the words. Mm-hmm. And on a garbled like phone recording, you don't get the extra verbal. So it's the tone inflection because what did you find versus what did you find? Yeah. Two totally different things. Yeah. Like what did I do versus what did I do? Like, and none of that would be communicated. No. And that's so much a part of what's actually being communicated. Yeah. Now, I do want to say to me, if this is what indeed is being said, then it lends itself to support a family conspiracy to cover up the girl's death. Now, I wrote that before you and I just had the conversation, which then I just want to second guess myself, which is this entire thing. But we're going to move forward. Let's push forward. (laughs) Now, here is where I want to discuss our first The Family Did It theory. So in 2016, CBS aired a special titled The Case of JonBenet Ramsey. And in this multi-part special, which I vividly remember watching while living in our Boulder home, it alleges that the one responsible for JonBenet's death was none other than Burke Ramsey himself. Now, I want to reiterate that this was an alleged theory, and in no way am I saying that this is what transpired the night. But here is what the theory says. John Bonet was put to bed after arriving home, but Burke wanted a snack. So his mother made him a bowl of pineapple, which has since come to be described as pineapple in milk. But I have no resource close to the actual investigation to substantiate that bizarre. Fact. Yeah, the milk part. Yeah. Yeah. Even John Douglas just says pineapple. Yeah. So I have no idea where that came from. But at some point, according to this alleged theory that I am not supporting in one way or another, <laughs> John Bonet comes downstairs and eats some of the pineapple out of a bowl that did have both Burke's and Patsy's fingerprints on it. Burke then gets very, very angry. Again, just retelling the theory put forth by the special. He grabs a flashlight, which can be seen in crime scene photos, and hits Jean Benet on the head out of anger. When tested for prints, the flashlight had apparently been completely wiped clean. The family claimed that the flashlight did not belong to any of them, and although it matches those carried by law enforcement officials, no officer on the scene the day of the 26th claimed it as belonging to them. Burke's behavior when being interviewed by a child psychologist did not paint a picture of a distraught older brother whose sister had just died shortly after her death. Burke would also be interviewed in 1998 by detectives, and during that interview, he never said anything specifically incriminating. Ultimately, Burke Ramsey would sue CBS for $750 million because of the special, Holy cow, I didn't know that. So again, I reiterate, what I have just described (laughs) is simply a theory put forward by a television special. Disclaimer, disclaimer. Now, in all truth, this line of thinking, supported by evidence, makes quite a bit of sense to me. However, what doesn't make sense is this. John and Patsy were both well-educated, very capable people. I can't envision their response to an accident would be a giant cover-up to protect a son who most likely wouldn't suffer criminal consequences. 
The family also had the means to get Burke whatever mental health he would require after such a horrific accident. And if need be, they could completely relocate and move if the stigma of such an incident made it impossible for them to continue living in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. Um, it. That, I do remember that um, show. Oh, I bought it vividly. hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, they did the a time. really good job. And I, you could totally, like, now thinking back to it, I'm like, yeah, you were going to sue the shit out of that. And he did. CBS, right? And they settled. They out did of the settle. Oh, so he definitely for came out. closed amount. Probably at least half, um, my guess. But. Uh, Enough to create a new identity and probably live happy never having to work a day in his life. So. Yeah. Well, and he was already probably, I mean, not living happy because of all this, but he, he was a, a rich man. Very, very uh, successful. Uh, but that, I think, is a great point. The very successful people, uh, very smart people. And it just, covering for... For Burke doesn't make sense in the way that it was done. I mean, if it is a cover up, but mm-hmm. all the evidence, everything, the way everything unfolded, it makes zero sense that they would come up with something so elaborate, <laughs> ho- elaborate and hodgepodge. Sadistic. Like, like, it, yeah. like it's like so many different thoughts, and it's just like, fuck it, do them all, do them all. There's also, here's the thing. The only way that works, I think, because there is no, um, nobody has come out during all this and said that the parents had passed um, a history of beating their children or even being mean. Like everybody described them as loving parents. Mm -hmm. And for those types of parents and really most any parent outside of maybe 0.5%, that are awful um, and do end up killing their kids. Everybody else, uh, they would not be able to take their child's dead body and put a garrote around it yes. and tighten it as tight yes. as it was tight tightened and bound the child's hands of their dead child. Um, so the only way it works is that Burke would have had to do that. He's 10 years old and he, there's, I just... Nine. Or, yeah, I thought he was 10. Mm, he's 9. Okay. Um, 6 and 9. Yeah. So, even so, a 9 a 9-year-old having the wherewithal to do all that. Um, I will just interject, just because this case doesn't make sense unless you have evidence presented to, like, counter everything anybody ever says. JonBenet did go to see her pediatrician within, like, 18 months of her murder because... Burke had hit her in the face with a, a golf club. Well, <laughs> so, I don't even yeah, know. <laughs> he still is a little boy and you know, I, I don't put it past. I'm just waiting for our son to hit one of our daughters hard in the face. He uh, heard he had her TV. So yeah, but here, that's, that's right. even better point know, that you. he doesn't have the strength yes. to take a flashlight and do the type of blow that she, he did because he had already hit her with something that you don't need as much strength because that's the way a golf club is made. Um, anyway. Well, John had survived the surprise loss of his older daughter, Beth, and Petsy 
Patsy, <laughs> which I have to correct. I said Patty. You don't understand. I was just reading last episode and I called her Patty a couple times. Excuse me. Patsy had the mental fortitude to fight a cancer that should have killed her. This couple was clearly strong enough to withstand such a scenario as presented in the CBS special. The next piece of evidence we need to discuss is the three-page ransom note left on the back stairs, which was discovered by Patsy that early morning of the 26th. There were a few things that immediately stood out to investigators about the ransom note, which Jason read in its entirety in part one. First, the writing appeared to be done in a way that the author was trying to hide their handwriting. For example, the author could have been using a non-dominant hand or intentionally drawing characters in a way that they believed was different from how they normally wrote. Second, the length of the ransom note was excessive, especially considering that the author would have written it in the home, which we will discuss later. There were words and phrases that were unnecessary, like the introductory phrase, we are a group of individuals, which when you think about it, most groups are made up of individuals. <laughs> there were also all of the random stipulations, like talking to a strange dog, that would warrant the alleged kidnappers killing John Bonet. Investigators also noted that the author vacillates between using I and we when referring to what had happened or what would happen. Had what happened to John Bonet ever been an actual kidnapping for financial gain? Was there one perpetrator or more perpetrators? The investigators found the amount requested to be interesting as well. John Ramsey was worth roughly $6 million, but the amount is very small compared to what the Ramseys could have potentially paid. You told me $6 million back then was you had the number i don't think do i remember? did normally i do those calculations yeah oh it's, it's it was a lot more in 96 than um it's six, a, i mean six million is still a lot now but a crap ton of money yeah <laughs> you're talking in almost 2024 yeah yeah uh but even now it'd probably be you know 15 million significant 20 million also the amount itself is random or it seemed random until officers were informed it was nearly the exact amount of John Ramsey's bonus that year, indicating that the author could have known that was an amount recently received. That wasn't the only detail in the note that revealed the author must be at least somewhat familiar with the Ramseys. Using the phrase, Southern common sense communicated that they were aware that John was originally from a Southern state. So on December 26th, officers at the house would ask John and Patsy Ramsey for anything that they could use to compare to the handwriting in the ransom note. John would grab two white pads of paper from the home. Atop the first page on one, he would write, John. That pad of papers was full of his work notes. On the other, he would write, Patsy. That pad full of doodles, lists, and notes made by John Bonet's mother. These two pads of paper were taken to police headquarters for comparison. I just want to say, what a different world we live in now. Right. Like, who do you know that has his and hers pads of papers no. just right there in the kitchen? No. Because 
that's what you need. <laughs> no, you and I argue over whether we're going to have a paper calendar or a digital calendar. <laughs> and then we have zero calendars. I, I'm the digital side. I am if not. If you didn't guess. I am not. You should see my handwritten notes for these podcast episodes. <laughs> now, one of the pads of paper would reveal something very interesting. On a piece of paper in Patsy's pad was a sheet of paper with the following line written. Mr. and Mrs. and then a single vertical line. Presumably the vertical line, the beginning of the letter R. What police would hypothesize is that this was the first attempt at a ransom note. Handwriting comparisons were done. John was excluded as the author of the note, but Patsy could not be excluded. According to Steve Thomas, one of the lead investigators on the case, one CBI, or the Colorado Bureau of Investigator, Investigations, <laughs> agent. <laughs> I didn't write in there that I was going to explain what CBI meant, but that's what it means. Uh, if, if you're not from Colorado, you might not know what CBI <laughs> An agent from the Colorado Bureau of Investigations reported that 24 of the 26 characters in the note belonged to Patsy Ramsey. It also didn't help Patsy that the pad of paper used to write the note and the pen with which it was written belonged to Patsy herself and were in the home the night of Jean Benet's death. Meaning that if someone entered the home that night with the hopes of kidnapping Jean Benet for financial gain, they did so with no ransom note and nothing with which to write one. Yeah, that's a. Uh, over the years, you know, you, that's one of those one things. I, every time I watch a documentary or hear about it, like, you know, we're talking about it or something, that being brought up, I'm always like, geez, how do you, how do you explain that, Patsy? Well, to many, there did not seem to be a reasonable explanation. The ransom seemed like a second thought. Like, ransom was never a goal in what happened to John Bonet. For most involved with the case, it seemed unlikely that an intruder would feel comfortable enough in a home to not only look for things with which to write a ransom note, but to also spend the time it would take to write two and a half pages worth of one. The ransom note quickly cast even more eyes upon the Ramseys, specifically Patsy. I literally remember hearing during the initial investigation as a young child living in the state of Colorado. The person who wrote the letter is the same person who killed John Bonet, and that person was Patsy Ramsey. I remember hearing that too. Yes. Yeah. But even now, now that we have looked into this a lot, um, you more than myself, but I, and also being parents, older, mm -hmm. uh, just a different perspective to look at this case from again, and. I, the more I think, I think you can explain away that like the characters that were similar to Patsy's. It is literally what I just said about what a different time in a kitchen. You have his and hers notepads. And let's just say this person, maybe this person was actually going to kidnap her. Um, they weren't strong enough to get her out the window or something like that and just decided to do what they were going to do there. Um, either way, if an intruder came in and decided to write a ransom note, which John Douglas 
hypothesizes that it is possible this person had already written a letter and brought it or forgot it and had to rewrite it. And so they had to go upstairs, find these pads of papers. And guess what? Oh, there's Patsy's pad. Mm-hmm. There's all the, I don't even have to think of care. I could just look over at, at the pad there and fake my handwriting based off of that. Um, well, and John Douglas had a very different impression as to the person who wrote the letter. And I don't know if you want to speak to what he said, but when he described the author of the ransom note, it definitely wasn't a 40-something-year-old suburban like housewife who was into pageants. He described somebody else. Do you remember what he said? Uh, it's a younger white male, yes. um, probably in their early 20s or so. And, and I think he attributes that to, um, which I thought this was so key of what he said in his book. Cause I, I thought it again, when I heard the letter again, uh, for the first time in like six years, I kept thinking, sounds like it's straight out of a movie. Like this letter is ridiculous. <laughs> and his theory is that, uh, a younger male is going to have like movie lines in their head already. Or if he wrote it before, like looked for those movie lines. It's like, okay, you know, yeah, yeah, talk to a stray dog. We're going to kill her. Yeah. There's also a line that comes from, I think, Speed in the yeah. ransom note, which is don't try to grow a brain, John. Yep. Yep. Which I actually can see Patsy being more of a fan of than some 20-something-year-old white male. But so I didn't talk about this at all in my script, but the sign-off where it says Victory SBTC, like investigators were like, that's the acronym for a naval base where John lived. But John, John. Um, Douglas said that wasn't even the name of the naval base at the time. And yeah. there was like a plaque in the John Bonet- in the Ramsey household that said SBTC, which I didn't really find conclusive. But yeah. if anybody is bored, there is a theory about so CU the campus is literally a four minute drive from where the Ramseys lived if that it's like a four minute walk almost in 1996 there was some math paper that was written of some sort of theory and the acronyms were was SBTC and on the internet there's some guy who speculates that the authors of this paper or individuals who knew about this paper had something to do with Jean Benet's death interesting but this case, you can find evidence to explain anything. But I just wanted to point that out now that we were talking about it. Yeah. No, I, I didn't know about that CU. Or maybe I did, but I didn't remember. Um, it's all just bizarre. Yeah, CU is right there. Yeah. And another, I, I'm sure we'll have another. Uh, go on, actually. Okay. So one of the lead detectives, Steve Thomas, is going to base his theory a lot on the notion that Patsy Ramsey wrote the ransom letter this theory pointed directly at john benet's mom now while searching through the house the morning of the 26th a large bag of diapers was noted hanging out of a cabinet near john benet's bedroom it was also reported to the investigators that in recent months leading to her death john benet was struggling with wetting even soiling her bed when first answering questions about how Jean Benet was put to bed, Patsy reportedly told investigators that Jean Benet went to bed in a red top. But when her body was found, she was wearing white. A red shirt was spotted, rolled up on the counter by a sink in the bathroom. 
Further, when Steve Thomas, the investigator, interviewed Patsy's mother, Nedra, he felt that when he broached the subject of bedwetting, she became incredibly elusive. Thomas would formulate a theory where Patsy Ramsey became enraged on Christmas night after again Jean Bonnet wet herself. His theory goes Patsy took Jean Bonnet into the bathroom and stripped off the red top, and in doing so, possibly yanked too hard, causing Jean Bonnet to hit her head, perhaps on the side of the bathtub, causing the head wound. What followed was Patsy doing everything else to stage the scene including writing the note. He will point to the fact that in the morning when officers arrived, Patsy was wearing the same outfit she wore to the party on Christmas night, but her hair and makeup had been done, which to him indicated a woman who had never changed out of her clothes. Why would she do her hair and makeup to only hurriedly put on a dirty outfit? Now, one issue with this theory is that the hit to JonBenet's head was so hard, it could have killed, and you're going to say a 700-pound man. 400. 400. Okay. So, in my head, I was like, 700-pound men don't exist. So, I wrote <laughs> 400, but I remember yeah. you saying so. No. <laughs> okay. A 400-pound man. It's hard to imagine any accidental fall that would result in that type of force. It would. <clears throat> She'd have to, like slinger into it like yeah. it wouldn't be because she's not heavy enough to produce that force on herself gravity wouldn't allow that i don't think yeah i think a 400 pound man would have to fall for it to kill a 400 pound man dang that's a big man yeah now there were other clues in the note that made investigators look outside of the family did it theory like looking at former employees of Wait, John's You're going company. on to the next. We're still talking about the note, which I can't say. I mean, I think overall it indicates that Patsy had some involvement. Okay. But there were Are clues. you going on to... Okay. But you are going on to like if it happened outside of Patsy? Yes. Okay. First, I, wanna, I just want to throw one more well, thing. Well, we're going to go back and forth because the evidence... Okay. Depending on your perspective could explain anybody did it. Uh, yeah. Um, I'll just say it anyway. I, the, since we were just there again for Patsy to have done it, mm -hmm. she would have to <laughs> think of a garage. First of all, like who thinks of that in general, um, put, make a garage, put it on her dead child twist. Um, also the kid in, is actually alive because most likely unconscious. They're so though. yeah, but they're so like the the blow to the head and the strangulation. Pretty close. So close that it's not like definitive which one did it. Um, well, we're gonna talk about the garage and how it's not actually a garage. There's just so many things. Okay, but even so, she would have to do that Correct. on her dead or what she thinks is a dead child. I think my husband is very pro an intruder did it theory, which is fine. No, I'm pro another thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll get there. So. Like I said, there were other clues in the note that caused investigators to look outside of the home for possible suspects. For example, John's business is specifically mentioned in the ransom note. And the amount requested was possibly connected to two specific former employees, Bud and Brenda Henderson, who each owed Access Graphics $18,000, which is just $100,000 off the ransom amount 
were investigated. Oh, that's interesting. Because mm-hmm. uh, 100,000 100, seems reasonable for somebody to just to add, ask, like, especially if they're not. We can pay back our 18,000 plus have an additional 100,000. Now, Brenda, I believe, was in a halfway house the night of the crime. But Bud's alibi was very, very questionable. Oh, really? But just like all of the other disgruntled employees, Bud and Brenda would be excluded from the suspect list eventually. Huh. Wonder... Did, did you see the reason I'm for I'm sure Bud? it's the DNA, which, <laughs> which we'll, we'll talk we'll about. Into. Now, supporters of the intruder theory would point to the broken window in the basement and a scuff mark below the window. But during the early days of the investigation, John would admit that he had broken the window months before when he had locked himself out of the home. The suitcase below the window would be pinpointed to as a tool the intruder could have used to escape the basement. But then there was the report that Fleet White was responsible for putting the suitcase below the broken window. Which is weird. Um, I don't even understand why they pointed the suitcase as something somebody could get out of. We've seen pictures it's a, like of the a, house. like a briefcase type suitcase. Yeah. And yeah. A, it That's probably isn't gonna, holding a, a, a right grown man. <laughs> or it's, yeah, or it's going to break. And yeah. yeah. Um, and, and B... You saw the pictures that I showed you yes. of, of the house. That's, it's listed right it's now. It's currently for sale. Yeah. And if and you go on Zillow. You, you can find it. You can um, find it. And see all the pictures. We actually went and looked at it. And it put we a did. whole nother perspective. And it completely changed my opinion about the entire case. And I can't explain why. I think it's the size of the house. It's just like. It's massive. Because we talked about it in the first episode. How the pictures that were like broadcasted everywhere Looks shows like, a reasonable size. And home. then you read it's over 5,000 square feet, and which actually on Zillow, it says over 6,000. I don't know if there's an addition. To the but. sides and it just continues to extend backwards mm-hmm. towards the alley. And it's like three different like architectural homes all put together, yeah. which people reported like all the work that had been done. Yep. Created a very hodgepodge, mazy type home. Yeah. It, but it still has this like unique coolness to it, but also it makes it sort of creepy, just knowing that this happened in it. It was all creepy. Um, but yeah, you, it, and it's it literally is three levels above ground. It's not it, like a lot of people think of a three story house as basement, main, second level. Right. No, this is three. It it's big. It's giant, and it gives I, you a different perspective of how something could happen in the basement, and where the master room, which is part of the, up in the attic area, how they wouldn't hear anything. Well, and there was sort of a venting tube outside of the that like cellar room, the wine room, where we had the report from a neighbor who said she heard a scream somewhere between 12 oh. and 2. Yeah. And investigators tested it like they went one night. And we're doing like scenarios inside the home to try to figure out. Yeah. And if Jean Benet screamed in the basement, it's more likely that a neighbor outside would have heard it than her parents upstairs. Now, they also went on to say like an intruder would have no idea that the parents wouldn't have heard that scream. To any intruder would be like, oh, my gosh, the the child screamed. I need to get out of here. True. Right. And well, maybe they did. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that's the quick blow. Maybe to the they head. were. Yeah. Maybe uh, they were going to do some dirty things, 
kidnap her and leave. And she screamed. And he had to figure it out. He had to figure it out. Hmm, maybe we just solved it. No, your <laughs> your solution at the end is the only thing that will explain it all. Right. Now, some say just because John broke the window, that does not mean an intruder could not have used it to enter or exit the home. But investigators would point to an intact spider's web in the window, which would make it unlikely anyone had traveled through it. Now let's move on to the evidence from the autopsy, starting with the duct tape, the white cord around John Bonet's wrists and neck, and the wooden stick used to fashion the garage. Now the garage, it was determined, was made from a paintbrush taken out of Patsy's art supplies in the basement. And the garage itself was not a traditional garage. Instead, the cord connected to the stick was actually a noose that was put around Jean Benet's neck and the stick added second to simply tighten the noose. But isn't that, a, that's what a garrote does. It doesn't. It's a loop Without thrown over the and noose, then you tighten and it the tightens. The noose feature. Well, I don't think I guess you the noose tie. Yeah. a noose. But maybe that's all they could, like they weren't the smartest you know, crayon in the box. Well, no, yeah. I know that's brightest. <laughs> but <They're>, they, <laughs> just want to make you laugh. They're not the sharpest bulb on the Christmas tree. They're <laughs> uh, not the, uh, the uh, brightest tool in the shed. <laughs> okay. I'll, actually, that one might work. I don't There's Flashlights. There's mm. flashlights. Dun, dun, dun. Now, this notion of a garrote stick added to a noose, which with a child who was presumably already unconscious due to the head injury, this noose itself would have been complete overkill. And then you add the additional unnecessary component of the garrote. Some saw staging of a crime, while others saw angry sadism. Another piece of evidence which could be used to support either theory. The family did it, or it was an intruder. Next, when investigators tried to tie the white cord or the duct tape to having an origin from within the home, like the garrote stick, investigators could not conclusively do so. What's interesting, because I've heard you say both cord and rope when we're talking about it, and it's... um, if you look at the pictures, which I don't suggest doing, um, unless it's just the items by themselves, it's definitely more of a rope. Mm-hmm. And one thing I thought of was it could be a rope from like sweatpants what's, or a hoodie. What's crazy is they have done like tireless, like um, actual laboratory investigations to determine the exact kind of duct tape the brand, the manufacturer, the cord was different. And I say cord because that's what a lot of my sources say. For the longest time, they kept saying it was a certain kind of cord. And then when they got an expert to look at it, they were like, no, this is a different kind of cord. Weird. So like the duct tape, they pinpointed to a man, like a type, sure tape, I think, by oh, okay. Braun. Yeah. The cord was different. Which... I mean, I just, I, I get why I call it a cord because it's, I mean, it, it's like too small to be a rope, but it's definitely like thread material. It's mm-hmm. rope-like. No, um, I think it. I, I re- think like, that's all I could think of. The only, the only thing, I mean, maybe like 
arts and crafts stuff. Um, but, but if, if it was some, something somebody just needed to use quickly, that's what I was trying to, I was like, Oh, well, I don't know, a shirt, uh, a hoodie, sweatpants. I did you, find got it your, interesting your rope that in there. the autopsy described frayed ends, which to me is somebody like took a knife and cut it off yeah. of a larger spool. Yeah. Which, which they couldn't find the spool in find the house. A spool. And, and of all like, okay, let's say it was staged by somebody in the house. What? Why, why would you just get rid of that? Why wouldn't you get rid of the notepads and the pen and everything else you use to stage this? Investigators also use technology to like look behind walls to see if they could find remnants of the duct tape or the cord, which I wasn't going to include, but we're just off the cuff discussing. And they couldn't find it. That's what we promised everybody. Yes. Now, when investigators tried to tie the white cord or duct tape to having an origin from within the home like the garage sticks, investigators could not do so, like I said. However, Boulder police did find strips of similar black duct tape behind a picture hanging in JonBenet's bedroom. But there was no specific spool that they couldn't connect the tape from her mouth to having been found inside the home. There also was no source of the white cord or rope to be found within the home either. However, investigators would discover that Patsy Ramsey had visited McGuckin's hardware on two occasions at the beginning of December. Good old McGuckin's. Mm-hmm. That's a, for those that don't know, a hardware store in Boulder. I think it's, I don't think it's a chain. I think it's just, it might be. I should look that up. Anyway, that's what it is. Hardware store. In Boulder. In Boulder. Now, Patsy Ramsey had purchased items that cost the same amount as both similar duct tape and cord, $2.29. But since the receipt from McGuckin's only listed the price and the department from which the item was purchased, it could not be concluded that Patsy had, in fact, purchased duct tape or white cord. They said they can't figure out where this white cord comes from. I'm just... How do they say, like, how do they put a price on... Well, they went to McGuckin's and they found similar products that were two twenty nine, dollars And then they identified receipts from Patsy Ramsey that had items being purchased from the departments where both the duct tape and the white cord would have been purchased from listed at the same price as the duct tape and the white cord. Well, I'm guessing they ruled out that cord then because they did all this testing on the cord and couldn't figure it out i'm sure somebody was like well here's something from mcguckins that's like that is it the same and then they were like no it's not i think once they figured out they wouldn't be able to determine which product was purchased those receipts were a lost cause Hmm. interesting for many the duct tape and the cord clearly supports an intruder theory now there was also the handprint on the cellar door But when we clarify that piece of evidence, there were actually three palm prints taken from the door, two of which belonged to Patsy, leaving one which could not be tied to anyone that had provided palm prints for testing. The boot print taken from next to where the body was found was actually taken from three separate boot prints that were all overlapping. Later in the investigation, it would be concluded that there was an FBI agent who had been in the home with the same high-tech boots as the print indicated. 
but as far as I can tell, those boots were never compared to the print from the floor. If we look at those four pieces of evidence at face value, the duct tape, the white cord, the palm print, and the boot print, they are very suggestive of an intruder. And there was never a shortage of possible intruder suspects. Well, and what's interesting with everything you just talked about with each item and the testing and whatnot that was done on them, it just leads me just more like almost anger towards Boulder PD and how inept they were. Mm -hmm. Like so bad. Literally the second one of their police officers, like their foot hit inside the house, that case was fucked. Yeah. I also find it really interesting as I was listening to one of the books, the author would say that once the case got as big as it got in terms of media coverage, most individuals were unwilling to give prints, were unwilling to say, hey, I could have left that, that could be mine, because they wanted nothing to do with the media circus that became the JonBenet Ramsey yeah. case. And the beginning of that was, um, yeah, go ahead, invite your friends over yeah. into this crime scene S- minutes after us, the Boulder PD, got here. Really, and, every piece of evidence could have been questioned like either we, by the prosecution or defense attorneys yeah. as not being valid or we, reliable. We know um, what it's like to have a lot of friends in a neighborhood. Right. And how fast word can spread. Yeah. You know how oh, quick yes. that's going to the media? Like, had be, the Boulder PD done it correct, there I, would have they would have had the time to do the right investigation. And and also had they, you know, taken the offering of help from Denver PD, from the FBI, but they I would have also, done it correct. I will also say when Boulder PD tried to make moves to probably mitigate the damage that their department had done, the DA's office wasn't really willing to entertain those right. moves because there was an incredibly adversarial relationship between the chief of police who was removed well, <laughs> he left his post during the course of this investigation and the prosecutor's office. Yeah, and yeah. politics absolutely had a detrimental effect on a potential outcome. Yeah. I, I, even with all of that, like that once Boulder decided, okay, we're going to do it right, they already screwed it up. Plus, they couldn't go back and fix things because right. of that relationship. Um, but had they done it right in the beginning... I don't think be that very, relationship very between um, the DA and or the prosecutor's office and uh, Boulder PD would have played any part in it. It's just Boulder it's is crazy. its own little world. It's own republic. <laughs> strange things happen. So Patsy Ramsey herself was very quick to point to none other than the Ramsey's own housekeeper as a possible suspect. Mm. Linda Hoffman Pugh had recently asked to borrow money from the Ramsey's about $2,000 which could suggest the financial motive that was present in the ransom note. However, when interviewed by officers and their DNA was tested, both Linda and her husband were cleared. I'm sure they had a good alibi as well. Um, I don't know. I thought that was... I don't know. Linda's husband seems like a riot, though. Apparently he was drunk (laughs) when he was interviewed the first time. (laughs) It's like a bit of a mess. Well, it's Christmas. You know, he's... Yeah. 
partying it up. Now, during Linda's interview, so the housekeeper's interview, she provided officers with something else to consider. Perhaps it was someone who had seen John Bonet in one of her beauty pageants, who became obsessed with the young girl who, in her costumes and pageant outfits, seemed like a much more mature individual. Investigators narrowed in on a known sex offender living in Boulder at the time of Jean Bonnet's murder. Gary Olivia was a 32-year-old man who was apprehended for drugs when officers found a cutout of a magazine picture of Jean Bonnet in his backpack. Things looked worse for Olivia when a high school friend of his, Michael Vale, came forward with a tip, saying he had actually received a call from Olivia in which Olivia admitted that he had hurt a little girl. Furthermore, Olivia had attempted to strangle his own mother using a rope tied with knots eerily similar to the ones in the rope or cord used to strangle Jean Bonnet. Olivia would, however, be excluded using DNA. It was just DNA with him? I thought he... There was no alibi that excluded him? No, that's for another piece of crap later on in the story. Okay. Um, did you see anything of what Olivia said he was doing that night? Or I didn't, but we... He, he, <laughs> didn't, he didn't say he did, right? Like, he never no, admitted. No, he never admitted yeah. to doing it. Um, I know. I don't know what his alibi was. I'm not sure he knows what his alibi was. Yeah, right. But I think eventually DNA became the like telltale sign and when compared to the dna they had olivia didn't match so he was free to go next i think we need to look at the evidence regarding a possible sexual component to the crime these were the hardest details to navigate when reading the autopsy report now the autopsy describes chronic and acute injuries to jean benet's genitalia at the time of her death her hymen was not intact there was blood and an abrasion on John Bonet's vaginal wall, which indicated some type of penetration, just not with a penis. A panel of pediatric experts would ultimately conclude that John Bonet suffered vaginal trauma prior to the day she was murdered. However, other experts would conclude that the damage to John Bonet's genitalia might have only occurred the evening of her death. As I mean, this case. Just inconclusive. One side says this, another exactly. side says the other thing. Every single thing. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, oh, it could be both. Yeah. Now, the autopsy also revealed microscopic birefringent foreign material in the vagina, which was examined under a microscope, appeared to be wood or perhaps the varnish from the wood handle that was used to make the garage suggesting that could have been the tool for penetration. Now, with these indicators that sexual abuse could have occurred prior to December 25th or the 26th, a theory developed that perhaps John Ramsey had been abusing his daughter, and to cover it up, he murdered her. So another piece of evidence to support the family did it. This theory was the reason why CDs, CD-ROMs, computers, tapes, and other sources of digital media were taken from the home. And when examined, there was no evidence of child pornography or any violence against children in any form. Also, when interviewing family and friends, no one indicated that John was even capable of hurting his daughter like that. 
To be honest, I feel that John is the least mentioned family member when attempting to explain the nights of the 25th or the morning of the 26th. Yeah. And there's a, I forget who John Douglas mentioned. It was right when he was getting started with the case. And I think it was the FBI guy uh, who basically just dealed with pedophiles. Mm -hmm. And he said, John doesn't match any uh, description or, or has no tendencies of what I see of a potential pedophile. So as like right away, John went into it, which he went into it with open mind. He did not go mm -hmm. into it. Like I'm going to prove the family didn't do this. He was, yeah. In his mind, the family did do it just based off the beginning stuff. And um, except maybe that John did it for sexual reasons. Yeah. Now, if sexual abuse had not been occurring prior to that night, but there was a sexual component to the crime, that would lend itself to an intruder theory. This is where I want to discuss Santa Claus himself, or Bill McReynolds as Santa Claus. Now, Bill McReynolds had played Santa Claus at a party at the Ramsey's home days before Christmas. The relationship between Bill and John Bonet was perhaps unusual. At one point, Jean Bonnet provided Bill with a small trinket full of glitter, and Bill expressed that he would like his ashes to be mixed with it when he eventually passed away. After Jean Bonnet's body was found, investigators would be told that Bill had told Jean Bonnet Santa would visit and bring her a surprise after Christmas. But when looking at the aged man, Boulder PD was not convinced he physically was capable of doing what had to be done to John Bonet, including carrying her down to the basement. But they investigated Bill nonetheless. And as they investigated, they found some disturbing coincidences. For one, Janet McReynolds, Bill's wife, or Mrs. Claus, had written a play in which a young girl was tortured and killed in a basement. Then investigators discovered that on December 26th, 1974, the nine-year-old daughter of the McReynolds had actually been kidnapped herself. What? Their daughter was taken along with another young girl to a separate location where the other girl was sexually abused before both girls were released. The investigators would even look at the McReynolds' sons, one of whom had issues with the law, but they would be excluded, some with DNA evidence, others using alibis. That's so crazy. Another, cra like, just an another addition to how wild everything is in this. Like, there's, it could be anybody and everybody. Like, everybody. And nobody like, and no one. <laughs> right. Like, everyone has some sort of weird tie to possibly, you know, being the one that did it, whether it be a book somebody wrote about like the same thing happening or it's insane. Or kidnapping on the day that, you know, she was supposedly supposed to be years kidnapped. Later or something. So crazy. Um All right. Mm. Then Oh, I did want to say Okay. Sorry. No, that's fine. You did bring up something about him like if you're an old man bringing down the body to the basement, which why one reason I wanted to mention how big the house actually is in per like being upright, you know, looking at it uh, in person. It, yeah, 
that's a lot of stairs you'd be going down. Well, um, and what's crazy is like, I, I don't ever hear it mentioned. Like she had to be taken from her room, which so, and I saw a lot of pictures of her room, but I don't hear people talk about like anything found in her room or how like nobody, so no I, theory of how she was brought out. So I, I do have a couple of notes on that for yeah. one I think it was even John Ramsey himself who, when talking about Bill McReynolds, he said that if his daughter was awoken in her room by anybody, she would scream and yell and kick, unless it was Santa Claus. And so Ooh. he said Santa Claus could get her downstairs without a commotion. But, or carrying her. But during her autopsy, they removed green material from her hair, which matched the garland down the staircase she would she have had to travel. Yeah. So they concluded she didn't walk down those stairs. She was carried down those stairs, and that's how the garland got in her hair. And so those two statements can't both be true, that Santa Claus got her to walk down the stairs quietly by herself or she also had to be carried down the stairs. Was the garland on a railing? It was on the railing. That's like the height of her. Like but no, if you're carrying her this way. No, I, I think it's way more feasible for for garland to get in her hair because you're being carried and your hair's dripping down. But yeah, and maybe it was the placement of where it was in the hair. But at the same time, like I don't six know. year old is at least railing height. Like, yeah, but it's not like she, she's bumping her head along the railing. she's as she all happy and kind of prancing down. Her hair's bopping back and forth. I don't know. I I just try and look at both sides. Right. Anyway. No, this case is two-sided, and both sides make complete and total sense. And, and nothing makes live. sense. So then in 2008, the results of a series of DNA tests would be revealed, and the results would be enough, according to the new DA of Boulder, Mary T. Lacey to write a letter of apology to the Ramseys, officially excluding them as suspects. This apology, however, would come too late for Patsy Ramsey, who had succumbed in 2006 to the cancer which had reemerged. Now, here is what I physically see in the DNA test results. So, DNA was taken from a blood stain on John Bonet's shirt. Retrieved from the duct tape pulled from JonBenet's mouth, from the blood stain on the white blanket, and from the blood stains from the nightgown, all belonging to JonBenet herself. The DNA taken from semen stains on the black blanket, which I believe was retrieved from inside the suitcase, could not be developed into any DNA profile. However, there was DNA, which came from the epithelial fractions or skin cells off of the same blanket, which was consistent as being a mixture from John and Patsy Ramsey, which suggests a plausible explanation for the semen. The couple in a blanket. Do you oh. know what couples do? <laughs> I, I was like, huh? Yeah, I should have gotten that a lot quicker. Yep. <laughs> so, this leaves us with the DNA, which was recovered from beneath Jean Benet's fingernails and the blood stain on Jean Benet's underwear. Now, in the previous episode, I said Jean Benet was found wearing long underwear, like long johns, and then I referred to her panties as underwear. There was a separate yeah. pair of underpants. 
These were taken from her underpants or her panties. Now, the major DNA component from each of the sources, her fingernails and her underpants, belong to John Benet. Mm-hmm. But for the next part, let me read directly from the report. If the minor components from exhibits number 7, 14L, and 14M were contributed by a single individual, then John Andrew Ramsey, Melinda Ramsey, John B. Ramsey, Patricia Ramsey, Burke Ramsey, Jeff Ramsey, John Fernie, Priscilla White, and Mervyn Pugh would be excluded as a source of the DNA analyzed on those exhibits. Now, number seven, the DNA, came from the blood stain on John Bonet's underpants. That does not mean that the DNA was taken from a blood source. It could simply mean that they retrieved John Bonet's blood as a source of DNA and found in it touched DNA from somebody else. Hmm. Now, 14L and 14M refers to the DNA taken from under the fingernails on each of her hands. Presumably, it was those three sources of DNA that were used to exclude the most sensational suspect to date in the JonBenet Ramsey murder case. Writing under the name Daxus... John Mark Carr sent emails to CU journalism professor Michael Tracy, in which he described in detail his love for John Bonet, as well as what transpired the night John Bonet was killed. The relationship between Daxus and the journalism professor Tracy, it developed enough that phone calls even transpired between the two, in which Daxus described strangling John Bonet. And at that description, Tracy would later recall it to have been one of the darkest moments of his own life. Simply at listening to this man describe that moment. I imagine. He also said um, that Daxus, or what's his actual name? John Mark Carr. John Mark Carr. Um, That Carr had details that only the murderer would know which I never heard what details those were. What I I watched, he didn't say what those details were, and I'm like... I think Daxus filled in details that, if true, would only have come from the murderer. I don't think he provided details that connected to evidence that hadn't been released yet. And this was in... um, 2000s Mm -hmm. what 2003 something like that oh no it was 2006 hey you think it was later yeah definitely it was later um so by this time all the details are out there like i don't i mean mean, unless we don't know there might be some details details boulder pd is still just waiting like this if they know this then that's the person that did it now daxis would say that he accidentally strangled the six-year-old during sex and wound up hitting her on the head with a flashlight. A team of investigative agencies, which even included the Secret Service, tracked Daxus down to living in Thailand, and Daxus, actually a man named John Mark Carr, would be extradited to the United States. DNA testing would exclude Carr. His wife at the time also reported that during Christmas of 1996, Carr was with her celebrating in Alabama. 
ultimately no charges were filed against Carr in JonBenet's murder. Also, possible charges against Carr for child pornography would eventually be dropped. Oh, I didn't know that. That those were dropped. Those were in California, weren't they? I don't know where they were. I thought he was serving a sentence, but they were dropped. And as of 2010, Carr was reportedly living as a woman, identifying herself as Alexis Valoran Reich or Delia Alexis Reich. Sounds right. Okay. Um, So he was completely excluded just because of the DNA. Just because of DNA. And you have more to tell us about We're going to go DNA, right into right? it. Yeah. Here is where I struggle with the DNA evidence. Taken from the report itself, the use of the phrase, quote, if the minor components from exhibits 7, 14L, 14M were contributed by a single individual, then it lists all those people to be excluded makes me very uneasy. It, what the, That wording is not conclusive at all. What if the DNA doesn't come from one individual? Can all of the individuals mentioned in the report still be excluded? And if they can't, then what? Are we back to the drawing board? Are we back to square one? Perhaps there is another report that says the DNA below Jean Benet's nails is the same from the source as the DNA taken from her underwear. So this is a whole nother issue. However, I doubt this. In the book titled Perfect Down, Perfect Murder by an author named Lawrence Schiller, the author makes the statement that when the housekeeper's husband, Mervyn Pugh, when his DNA was tested against the DNA from beneath the fingerprints, it didn't match. And then it was tested against the DNA from the underwear and didn't match. Suggesting that this author, who is much better researched than myself, is under the impression that the DNA from the fingernails and the underpants isn't actually from the same source. So do we have two killers? Or is the DNA from one of those sources the killer and the other from an innocent source? If that's true, how will we know which is which? But let's say it is the same DNA profile on John Bonet's underpants and beneath her fingerprints or her fingernails. <laughs> if I've said fingerprints, I apologize. Yeah, I mean, fingernails. I think that was the first one. <laughs> what if the DNA from beneath her fingernails winds up on John Bonet's underwear because, as a six year old girl with an issue of wetting her bed, she simply was itching beneath her underwear when she deposited the minor contribution to her underwear, which was then collected along with the DNA from her own blood that wound up on her underwear during the attack. This DNA, which could have come from a variety of innocent sources winding up below John Bonet's fingernails, which isn't blood evidence could literally have come from a dozen other places, none of which came from the murderer, his or herself. Is that DNA considered touch DNA? So I don't know about the DNA below her fingernails. However, there was one Fox News article that said literally could have been deposited there with her playing in dirt. Right. 
So to me, it's not blood DNA. So anything that's not blood DNA, I'm not sure if it's touch. Blood because DNA, it's somebody's blood dripped right. in her finger. Like she scratched her killer, his yeah. blood dripped on her underwear. None of it is blood DNA. I would, and, and the reason I wonder if it uh, touch DNA is different than, <clears throat> let's say you scratched the killer, didn't get blood, but you have skin. Epithelial. Yeah. So the, it's got to be a little bit different because touch DNA can literally be, um, you grab somebody's arm and you've left right. a little bit of skin cells, I but guess. But then I go back to the fact, why are you testing a suspect's DNA against both? If they're the same, wouldn't you just test them against one? Right. So to me, there's True. nothing in the so, report release that said it's the same. Yep. Because they said if it's from the same. indicates that it's. Yeah, even the way that what you were saying, the the phrase that bothers you the most. Uh, if it comes from one individual, which. If it comes from one individual, like they're, they are literally saying in that, we are not saying it comes from the same individual. Yep, and neither did the CBI. So additionally, while the grand jury was convened in 2008, the CBI leaked the fact that two or possibly three Unknown DNA profiles were pulled from John Bonet's underpants, hmm. which confuses how important the DNA actually is, considering it's doubtful that two or three individuals wandered about the Ramsey home that night completely undetected. So again, which DNA profile belongs to the killer and which one or ones are from an innocent source? Or does she even have the killer's DNA on her. She might not at all. She might not have any of it because the killer maybe has gloves on, has a mask on. She's a tiny little six-year-old who at some point, I'm going to mention him, but I don't want to. I can't remember his first name. He was a retired detective out of Colorado Springs who came out of- Spitz. Spitz. What's his first name? I can only remember his last name. Detective And he (laughs) believed that she had been hit with a stun gun- now, Boulder mm-hmm. police had different um, like explanations for the marks on her skin. But in which case, if she was hit with the stun gun, she's not fighting back at all. There's no reason for the perpetrator's DNA to be on her skin yep. whatsoever. And Douglas, um, I keep mentioning him. I, I wish I could remember all his accolades of like why this dude is the man when it comes to profiling. Um, but he, he created a profiling program in the FBI that I believe they still use today. Um, he, he knows his stuff mm-hmm. and he gives Spitz all the credit in the world. And it's really interesting. Spitz, it, it, like he, he had solved a case in a way that was like kind of groundbreaking. And that's why he is such a, um, idolized guy when it comes to this type of stuff and people in those fields. So, I say all that to say Spitz knows his stuff way more than Boulder PD, who... Well, don't don't go there. No, no. This is why I say Because this. John Douglas spoke equally as, like, Look, positive. Yeah, absolutely, of detective there. But when we actually yeah. look at experience levels, it's very clear everybody in Boulder PD does not have the proper experience to handle a case like this and for them to say no spits his theory is wrong and here's our theory 
that I really question. And there's one fact at the time, and I, it's probably about the same still, outside of a massacre that happened there recently. Um, outside of that, Boulder at the time averaged one murder a year. <laughs> one murder. Like, that's how safe this town is and how little crime happens there. Um, most of it's probably Boulder or uh, college kids being stupid. Here's what I'm going to say in so response would they to know? that. That has nothing to do with John Benet herself. So the lead detective for Boulder PD, a man named Steve Thomas, when not even from his own book, but from another book, when talking to another individual connected with the case, he would say about Steve Thomas, if my child went missing, all I would have to say to Steve is find her. And he would. So I get that Spitz has accolades and you think he's better served. I think Steve Thomas was absolutely capable of solving the case. I think that his hands were tied by political issues. And all the issues that happened problems in the beginning. that happened before he even stepped yeah. on the scene. And so earlier I said that like experts in the field landed on both sides you literally have on one side Steve Thomas versus Detective Spitz because we can't remember his name. You have Henry Lee and you have John Douglas. Completely capable individuals of interpreting evidence, seeing it two totally different ways. In 2022, John Ramsey spoke at Comic-Con in support of a change.org petition designed to get Governor Polis who is currently the governor of Colorado, to intervene and get Boulder PD to allow outside agencies to test the DNA collected, like the companies who test and make connections through genealogical sites. The following November, to that Comic-Con visit, Boulder Police, along with the DA, would issue a press release. In this release, they would call it an, quote, ongoing homicide investigation and their intention was to consult the Colorado cold case review team in 2023 end quote they reiterated that their investigation had explored 21,000 tips letters and emails and that they traveled to 19 different states and had spoken to over a thousand individuals they also stated that they are working with the FBI, CBI, Colorado Department of Public Safety, and several private laboratories across the country. And now, well, they are waiting. Waiting for proven technology to be developed that could reliably test the samples of DNA in their possession. Because now, further testing of the DNA samples could consume what little they have left. And so justice for John Bonet waits. But in this, although tragic and frustrating, it is not rare. While John Bonet's case seemingly warranted global attention, perhaps because of the way John Bonet looked, the wealth of her parents, or the strange little town in which she lived, crimes against children are all too common, and justice often goes unserved. When researching this case, I felt like the JonBenet story was a choose-your-own-adventure in which every choice the reader could make had to have made sense at the end. You want it to be Burke Ramsey? Great. Go to page 49. We have a voice at the end of the 911 call and a bowl of pineapple for that. 
Wait, you want it to be Patsy? Go to page 55. We have a ransom note and several discrepancies in her story. What? You think it was John? Perfect. Turn to page 74. We have speculation around chronic sexual abuse to explain it. Or perhaps you believe it to be an intruder. We'll just turn to page 100. We have a broken window, palm and boot prints, an unexplained cord and tape, which will support all of that. What? You want it to be Santa Claus? We'll turn to page 113. We have a somewhat uncomfortable connection to the child, <laughs> a previously kidnapped daughter, and a Mrs. Claus who wrote a play almost exactly like what happened to Mrs. Ramsey <laughs> or to John Bonet. <clears throat> Oh, that's good. Okay. So it seems like every hope is pinned on DNA. DNA which may or may not have come from one individual or two individuals or even three individuals. DNA which may or may not have gotten beneath John Bonet's fingernails or on her underpants during the attack. DNA which may or may not have come from the killer. DNA which may or may not be relevant at all. I went into this story, even up to the end of recording part one, convinced that the killer was living in the home Christmas night, 1996. And now I literally have no idea. So I'm going to let my husband tell his theory. And to be honest, it is the only theory, literally, that explains every piece of evidence. And that will be the outro to this episode which usually is my thing. One of my favorite parts of writing a script is the outro. So this is a belated Christmas present to you, Jason, and you better make it good. Well, the pressure's on then. You usually go into this so smooth um, from what we were talking about, and I'm gonna just ruin that right now by saying this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will tell you, I think the only way we can explain everything and for it all to make sense, sort of, <laughs> is to separate ourselves from our perceived reality and look to a theorized reality. And that is the theory of the multiverse. So a part of this theory is that there are parallel universes that look like our reality, but each universe plays out differently. For example, in one universe, you might have brown, brown hair, Katie, you might, and <laughs> in another, black. And in this one, you have blonde. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also a theory within this one that there might be some way these parallel universes can overlap or leak into each other in a little way. So, perhaps, mm -hmm. on Christmas Day in 1996 in Boulder, Colorado, multiple universes spilled a part of itself into ours and became our reality. In one universe, John Bonet was killed by strangulation, and in another, by blunt force trauma. And in another one, she was kidnapped, and there was a ransom note left by some evil group Perhaps in another one, her brother and mother killed her and all, all of them covered it up. But for a night, all these universes collided and left us, this world, with a tragic 
awful mess where no one piece of evidence or all of it together can be used to solve this case.